Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on March 29th, 2021 from my home studio here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. In this episode, State Superintendent of Education Molly Spearman says end-of-year tests will be taking place despite her attempt to get a waiver from the Biden administration. We look at what's on the Senate's radar for this shortened legislative week. Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin gives us his perspective on the economy and the ramifications we continue to see more than a year into the pandemic. DHEC has encouraging news from its monoclonal antibody program, and federal officials continue to warn of a potential surge even as the end of this pandemic is in sight. Additionally, we want to hear your stories, so we set up a voicemail box to hear from y'all during these uncertain times. Leave us a one to three minute long voicemail at 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and what's going on in your world. 803-563-7169. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is ongoing, widespread, and not contained, according to data from the Department of Health and Environmental Control. There have been 8,053 confirmed deaths, and currently there are 464,169 confirmed cases being reported in all 46 counties as of March 29th at 4 p.m. On Monday, we saw zero confirmed or probable deaths being reported. Our death rates continue to decline as well. However, on March 25th, we did see a spike of 32 deaths, which was four times higher than our typical moving average. However, that was likely due to previous data. Our current seven-day moving average of cases is 589, which is below the average from the previous week of 641 cases. That's also good news. Our current percent positive rate is 4.7%, which is good because it's below 5%. And 519 patients are currently hospitalized with COVID-19, 125 are in intensive care, and 59 are on ventilators. State Superintendent of Education Molly Spearman announced on Monday that end-of-the-year assessment tests will be administered this spring despite her attempts to get a waiver from the U.S. Department of Education in light of two other interim assessments conducted this year. Now, unlike other assessments, the year-end ones must be done in school, face-to-face. But the feds have waived any penalties should a family not feel safe to send their child to school for the testing, though currently every school offers either full face-to-face or a hybrid option. Spearman said other assessments given in August and December have already provided educators with the needed insight on where students were struggling. And now, taking a week off from schooling to conduct the test will take away precious instruction time with just days left in the school year. And just so you know, the audio is from this WebEx call, so it was a little muffled, but bear with me. Here's Superintendent of Education Molly Spearman. One thing that I was concerned about in the offering the summative assessment, that it will take valuable time away from the classroom teaching when we so desperately need every minute that we can have to instruct our students. Um, But here's where we are with the operation. Uh, We have ordered uh, from our supplier, our Data Recognition Corporation. They are in the process now of shipping the summative assessment data or test to school districts for that very um, high level of security around that test. 
and that is why it must be given in person at school. It can be done on the computer, but not virtually at home. Some districts have asked for pencil and paper waivers, but those materials now are being shipped out to the districts and will be distributed as they are in the past uh, for, for the date of testing. The state has received substantial federal funding to help with a multitude of pandemic-related needs, including money to combat learning loss. Spearman broke down where the biggest problems are. We have taken the information from the districts on their interim assessment, and we have historical data from the districts as well, how they had done in, in years past, with the prediction that's done by statisticians on where these students should be, uh, and comparing it to what the summative data would have been, we work with a group called Education Analytics, and they have been able to really crunch the data and give us some good uh, overall, a good overall look at where our students are. Uh, and we can share that with you. Basically, um, we would say that our students, um, particularly in math, particularly in fourth and fifth grades, uh, had not done as well as they normally would pre-COVID. We have shown growth from August to December uh, in most all grades, but there are some areas still that need growth. So, John, if you could be a little more specific, you may have that date in front of you. I don't, I don't have that. And Spearman is talking about Dr. John Payne. He's a deputy superintendent over federal programs, accountability, and school improvement. And he elaborates further. English language arts, really fourth and fifth were, were the big ones. And then mathematics, we saw um, learning loss for fourth all the way uh, up to eighth, as well as ninth graders as well. And, you know, for those of us who work in education, that kind of makes sense, right? Because uh, since math, you're, you're kind of building on different skills as you go up. And so, um, so that's kind of where we have that data. Superintendent Spearman said, working with education analytics, what we're working with them is to link all of these test data together to really give teachers and principals and superintendents robust information about where their students are, uh, where they're going in terms of prediction about, uh, and then every time we give another assessment, that, in, that prediction gets a little better uh, so that we can address their performance and most importantly, think about what kind of summer learning opportunities may be appropriate. What does next school year need to look like in terms of interventions and supports to get these students uh, you know, uh, back to where they should be and address any unfinished learning? So a lot of complex work going on into identifying where the needs are with these assessments and creating the programming and support to address those education shortfalls. A lot of moving parts of this pandemic, people. It's not just back to school. It's where are the problems, so many things. Switching gears to the State House, it will be a shorter and quieter week since the House of Representatives is on furlough and the Senate is only in Tuesday and Wednesday. However, there will still be plenty of Senate meetings going on, including on Tuesday. There will be a hearing on the bill to break up DHEC. The Senate Finance Committee will receive a budget update from state economists, and the Judiciary Committee will also meet. On Wednesday, the Medical Affairs Committee will discuss several bills, including Senator Tom Davis's medical marijuana bill and S-177, which would prohibit an employer from taking action against an employee who chooses not to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The Education Committee will also take up a student-athlete compensation bill. So, some interesting bills still making their way through the committee process with about a week until crossover on April 8th. 
Now, I know we keep talking about this crossover date, but bills can still make it over to the other chamber after April 8th if they have two-thirds support. But everything gets trickier after crossover, with just 15 legislative days left and the budget becoming the primary focus of Senate business with Senate floor debate expected the week of April 26. So we're getting close to the end here, folks. Richmond Federal Reserve Bank President and CEO Tom Barkin recently spoke before a group of economists about some of the ramifications of the pandemic. And in keeping with an education focus in this episode, he remarks on the consequences of the education disruptions in this pandemic. We also face potentially huge losses in human capital from the shift to remote education. The Richmond Fed has launched a six-part series on this topic, which you might want to view. We know from decades of research that learning builds on itself, and that means that disruptions to schooling are likely to have lifelong consequences. In the fifth district, students outside of the suburbs are less likely to have access to computers and fast broadband at home, and this greatly impedes their ability to learn remotely. Students in low-income neighborhoods are more likely to suffer persistent negative effects from the shifts to remote learning, further widening the education gap that existed before the pandemic. The pandemic has also accelerated automation boosting demand for contactless technology, online retail, and telemedicine. As a result, we could see less demand for the low-skill personal contact jobs that today have higher unemployment. A recent paper suggests that women may also be more exposed to this risk than men. On the business side, this recession, like most, hits small businesses hardest. Larger businesses generally have had the resources to navigate the pandemic. With fewer small businesses, we risk missing out on the game-changing productivity gains that they often deliver. If you take an even broader view of scarring, the pandemic has placed a unique strain on cities. Many people who used to work in downtown offices are home. City residents are afraid to get into crowded subways and elevators. City amenities, like theaters, are closed. History has shown us that cities are incredibly resilient, having survived countless wars and plagues, so they might well recover. But there are already signs of migration from downtowns to surrounding suburbs in the largest cities. If this shifts commerce from downtown to the suburbs, What will that mean for the many service sector businesses and workers in city centers? We risk scarring our urban platforms of collaboration and innovation. As someone focused on the rural-urban divide for years, I might call out that small towns and inner cities face one common challenge, the lack of affordable broadband. This crisis has crystallized the case for its universal deployment, and doing so may be the greatest lever for revitalizing the residential part of inner cities, and making small towns competitive in the pursuit of jobs and talent. Our bank has made this a research area of focus as well. Broadband definitely remains a priority for state and federal lawmakers. We just saw $30 million get put in the House-approved budget, and Congressman Jim Clyburn and Senator Amy Klobuchar are sponsoring a $94 billion bill to provide high-speed internet in underserved urban and rural areas. And Senators Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott just introduced a $20 billion bill for broadband infrastructure as well. So what form broadband funding will take remains to be seen, especially as President Joe Biden and Democrats begin crafting a massive infrastructure bill. Now, there was $7 billion in the $1.9 trillion relief package for distance learning. And South Carolina previously allocated $50 million under the CARES Act funds for things like hotspots and internet for 100,000 families, as well as money for broadband mapping. 
Some $30 million of that money went toward actual rural broadband infrastructure upgrades in our state. So again, just a little little tangent there on what's going on with broadband in the state, but it remains a huge focus. Now, as for the health of the country overall and debt, President Barkin says we are not in a debt crisis right now, but need to be aware of how such debt levels could hurt us in the future. On the policy side, the aggressive fiscal response helped support a quicker recovery, but it's also fueled a record increase in federal debt, over $4 trillion last year. While there are no immediate signs of a U.S. debt crisis, we should be wary of diminishing our fiscal capacity to respond aggressively to the next crisis. Europe's overall fiscal response to the current crisis has generally been smaller than the U.S.'s, and one could argue that has held their economies back. So what can policy do? The first and obvious step is to get the virus under control. Scarring of workers, businesses, and communities should be much less in a world that's able to return to normal or something resembling normal quickly versus one in which we're still afraid to get into an elevator. The priority now is getting vaccines distributed and safely reopening the economy. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced it is extending the eviction moratorium through June. The order was set to expire at the end of March and now will last through June 30th. NPR reports that studies show that evictions spread COVID-19 and result in more deaths from the disease since people are forced into more crowded living situations. Also, more than 8 million American households are behind on their rent, according to the Census Bureau. Last week, we reported $346 million in federal funding will soon be available in the state to help with back rent, utility bills, and emergency rental assistance. said it before we're going to say it again everyone aged 16 and older is eligible for the covid vaccine starting wednesday march 31st we did it folks this is huge news for the state and just so you know currently pfizer is the only vaccine available to those aged 16 to 18 all three vaccines pfizer moderna and jansen are available to those aged 18 and older you can find a location by going to scdhack.gov slash vax locator or you can also call and schedule an appointment. You can call 1-866-365-8110. Moving on, DHEC said Monday that hospitalizations due to COVID-19 have begun to decline, in part because of the prioritization of high-risk individuals in the state's vaccination plan, as well as the success of the state's monoclonal antibody program. State health officials estimate that well over 1,000 hospital admissions have been avoided and more than 100 COVID-19-related deaths have been prevented in the state due to monoclonal antibody treatments. Doctors determine whether a treatment is appropriate for a patient after the patient is first diagnosed with COVID-19. The sooner a high-risk individual who has tested positive begins receiving this treatment, the more successful it is in reducing their symptoms from COVID-19. So that's good news, something to be aware of. Again, another tool in our toolkit as we combat this virus. Zooming our lens out from statewide to nationwide, President Joe Biden's administration plans to administer 200 million shots in its first 100 days of office. This is doubling his original goal. So far, 73% of seniors have received their first dose. And overall, nationwide, 36% of adults have received their first dose as well. And vaccine manufacturers remain on track for their production goals. 
During a White House Coronavirus Task Force meeting on Monday, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky pleaded with the American public to hang on for just a little bit longer to prevent another surge like European countries are seeing. The trajectory of the pandemic in the United States looks similar to many other countries in Europe, including Germany, Italy, and France. Looked like just a few weeks ago, and since that time, those countries have experienced a consistent and worrying spike in cases. We are not powerless. We can change this trajectory of the pandemic, but it will take all of us recommitting to following the public health prevention strategies consistently while we work to get the American public vaccinated. I'm calling on our elected officials, our faith-based communities, our civic leaders, and our other influencers in communities across the nation. And I'm calling on every single one of you to sound the alarm, to carry these messages into your community and your spheres of influence. We do not have the luxury of inaction. For the health of our country, we must work together now to prevent a fourth surge. When we were stagnating at around 40 to 50,000 cases a day for a couple of weeks there, um, we didn't see trends going down anymore, but things were sort of holding steady. What we've seen um, over the last week or so is a steady rise in cases. We're now in the 60 to 70,000 range. And when we see that uptick in cases, what we have seen before is that things really have a tendency to surge um, and surge big. Um, we know that cases sometimes can be in a week or two behind the behaviors that lead to those cases, the mixing that leads to those cases. Um, we know that travel is up. And I just worry that we will see the surges that we saw over the summer and over the winter again. An increase in travel, more so than we've seen at any time during the pandemic, has Walensky concerned about another surge as cases again continue to increase. This all comes as around 2.3 million Americans get vaccinated a day, with just weeks to go until every American will have access to the vaccine. Luckily, starting Wednesday, every South Carolinian will have access. But remember, it takes two weeks after your last dose to get the powerful protections from the vaccines which is why Walensky and Dr. Anthony Fauci continue to ask Americans to hold on and continue to follow masking and social distancing protocols. Dr. Fauci shared some recent research about the power of the vaccines and what he has seen while doing rounds with COVID-19 patients. This is a paper from the Annals of Internal Medicine from some time ago, which showed that about one third of people with SARS-CoV-2 infection never develop symptoms. That's the good news. Next slide. Of those who do develop symptoms, about 80% have mild to moderate symptoms, but about 20% or more have severe disease with case fatality rates varying from a few percent to up to 20% for those requiring mechanical ventilation. Now, let me show you something that is very dramatic. If you look at the multi-system manifestations of COVID-19, they are multitudinous. The most important and, and, and common of which is the acute respiratory distress syndrome. But we know now there are neurological disorders, cardiac dysfunction, acute kidney injury, hypercoagulability. Bottom line, this is a very serious disease, which has already led to the death of about 550,000 people in the United States. So again, such a horrible virus that varies from no symptoms to prolonged effects in some different parts of your body, and of course, even death. Now, we heard Dr. Fauci there, but the good thing here is that all of the vaccines, all of them, 
protect from hospitalization and death due to COVID-19. The importance of that can't be understated and just goes to show how powerful these shots are. And really quick before we go, the Biden administration announced that by April 19th, 90% of adults in the United States will be eligible for vaccination and 90% will have a vaccination site within five miles of where they live. This is due in part to more than double the pharmacies in the federal pharmacy vaccination program, more mass vaccination sites by April 19th, and a new effort to fund community organizations to provide transportation and assistance for the nation's most at-risk seniors and people with disabilities to access vaccines. Go get your shot, folks. Welcome to our wind down section, our little break from the news. We talk about life during the pandemic and want to hear your stories as well. Tell us how you're handling things. If you've gotten both doses of the shot, if you got one dose of Johnson Johnson, how things are going, you know, like we keep hearing, we're almost done with all this, all this stuff. And we want to know how you're handling it. Give us a call. 803-563-7169. Uh, AT, we have someone who has called us. Is my understanding? We have someone who has called us is a is a statement of fact by Gavin Jackson. Someone has called <laughs> yes. us. Someone has called us. Yes. Uh, I think it's a first time caller. I, I'm not sure. But either way, uh, let's see what she has to say. Let's go to the hopper. Let's rip it. <laughs> let's rip it, br- bud. Hey, do it. <laughs> rip it up. Hi, my name is Miranda. I'm calling from Spartanburg, South Carolina. I just wanted to give you guys my coronavirus experience. I actually graduated college in 2020 and wasn't able to walk, had to finish my senior year online. It's fine. I'm not bitter or anything. It was actually nice because I graduated and then was able to hop right on unemployment, actually, and have my job search funded by unemployment while I wasn't able to keep my waitressing job. And then... Luckily, I was able to find a job in my field, which is geology, and it brought me to Spartanburg, and I'm just loving it. So even though all of this chaos happening with the pandemic, 2020 was a pretty okay year for me, and I actually just got a pair of kittens, so things are looking up, and your podcast has really kept me up to date and brought me up to speed in South Carolina, moving there, and staying up to date with the vaccination rollout. So thank you guys for being so welcoming. My first friends in South Carolina, basically. Yeah. Happy 2021. Hopefully COVID will be over soon. I got my first vaccine too. So party on. Thanks guys. Miranda from Sparnberg, welcome to our state. Glad that you found us. Glad you're here. Definitely party on. <laughs> love it. Also love to hear about that uh, unemployment-sponsored employment search. Getting a little paid, a oh, yeah. little kickback there to do that. That worked out great for you. And to get a job in your field, I mean, I can tell you it's... Congrats. It's, yeah, that's a lot of work, especially <laughs> when you're in the middle of a pandemic and a yeah. huge, you know, economic disaster. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm speaking from experience when I graduated in 2008 in the middle of all, you know, the great oh, recession. Yeah. Terrible stuff. Terrible and, time. You know, I graduated <laughs> and it was like December because I had, I had a internship during college. So I graduated in December and graduated. And I was like, okay, went home, hung out for like a solid month. And I was like, Jesus, what's going to happen now? You know, this journalism was, <laughs> you know, like journalism wasn't doing so hot. Still has its Gavin issues. And I, yeah. We are, we are definitely from a, a, 
a generation of people who went to college. And when we started, we, we all went into these, learned about these fields that didn't exist by the time we finished <laughs> yeah. college. And we're like, okay, cool. I'm like at home in Maryland. I'm like, okay, mom, well, uh, since I'm here now, let me like get you cable since she didn't have cable. I was like, okay, we upgrade everything. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. what do I do now? And then luckily I had interviewed when I was at school for a, uh, a spot at a small newspaper in Lima, Ohio, and mm. I, I did that because my Majestic professor's like, Lima. oh, we just, he's the, the photo editors here. We just need people to interview. I'm like, I'm never going to come back to Ohio after I graduate. Ron. Sure enough. It like <laughs> was the thing that saved me because they're like, they're like, do you want to come on my guests? I don't care. <laughs> I can't yes, stay at my mom's you. house any longer. <laughs> you know, and she's like, you're going back. I'm like, yeah, this is my life. This is my job. I got to go where the job is. The wasteland of Ohio. Yeah, uh, Western Ohio. You know, I went to school at, at Kent State, which is, you know, northeast, which is, you know, you're right next to Akron and Cleveland. But this was in Bustling Lima, metropolises. across the state. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, but it was good because then I, you know, was there for a year and then I uh, got another internship at the Columbus Dispatch, which was a huge accomplishment for me. And then Baton Rouge for another year. I interned for like three years out of college. <laughs> it was the life. I loved it. And that, then I, I did the same thing. Landed I did in Florence. Intern- you know? uh, in a thousand music studios and and live music places mm-hmm. before I got any sort I loved of traction, it. you yeah. know. Oh, it was it was great. I love staying up till four in the morning. <laughs> oh, I love it, dude. Oh yeah. Anyway, Miranda, I think you really buried the lead there with the two kittens. Yeah. Did, I hope I hope you named them Gavin and At. If we're your first <laughs> friends, you better have named them Gavin and At. You got to name them after us. <laughs> yeah, we're we're a cat forward pod because you know. <laughs> Chippy, he is the uh, associate producer, and Yogi, he works on the money side, so you don't really hear from him. <laughs> you never, <laughs> you just, you see his name on the check. Yeah, you just, yeah, you see, <laughs> he signs our checks, baby. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Speaking of checks, I mean, I spent part of my stimulus check on my my tax bill oh, this year. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say. That's what I forgot to, uh, Gavin. We was asking me what we were gonna talk about in this wind down. I, Caitlin, and I still have not received our stimulus checks. Uh oh. You got to talk to Chippy. Has he been doing the paperwork here? (laughs) If Chippy's doing the paperwork, we're in trouble. Uh, 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 But we're getting them mailed to us either way. It's like us and everyone. Yeah. Us and everyone on Social Security is getting them mailed. We've gotten all our other ones direct deposited, but uh, we we still have not gotten our... Caitlin was like, do we make too much money? I was like, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, definitely yeah. not. No, I had to I had to pay some extra taxes because I did that freelance spot for a news hour and mm-hmm. they didn't take anything out on it. And I I didn't plan accordingly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that far ahead sometimes. And I was like, oh, well, let me just pay Uncle Sam with, you know, Uncle Sam. So it worked Sam out. dollars. Yeah, Sam, Sam dollars. Sam bucks. Sam bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Joe, Uncle Sam, boom. Same. Yeah. So that's what I got to spend part of my money on it. And I guess the rest of it I just, you know, you just pay normal stuff with it. I didn't squirrel I didn't, away. Yeah, I didn't. Expand you know. your liquor cabinet. I usually do that. Jackson. You know, I, I yeah, like to be a stereotype when it comes to these things. So <laughs> get a nice little bottle, something, treat myself. But now, now what, are you, what are you going to spend it on? You've already. We might. Uh, we talked about, remember, we talked that Caitlin and I both shire hive mind to uh, decide to rearrange <laughs> yes, the living right. room. Yes. So we might we might buy a nice couch to, to make that uh, uh, collective dream a reality. That's nice. So. We we might we uh, Captain Planet our uh, stimulus checks together, and then would that couch. would that couch go downstairs with and replace that go, couch? We, or we is there a curb alert? People pe- should be aware of maybe curb <laughs> alert. I'll, I'll throw it out here first. If anyone wants a couch that uh, my dad bought when I was in seventh grade, baby. 
<laughs> but, um, loved, well loved. Well loved, yeah. Well, I mean, you just also got some new frames too. So, I mean, we're talking, Ooh, there's baby. a lot of hive mind, a lot of beautification yes. efforts we, underway in the Shire House. Yeah, I, I compulsively buy uh, like uh, pictures that look like they're heavy metal albums from artists I follow on Instagram and stuff. And so... Uh, I've been piling them up for like three years and we yeah. finally... Everyone has that went. frame pile, you know, need to frame pile. And we, Caitlin and I finally made went, went in on those yesterday. Oh, love it, it, was, it was a lot of work, yeah. It takes years to get to that stage and the collecting yes. and then it's like, okay, pull the trigger, get the frames. Correct. And now you're in the yeah. where do I put it phase. <laughs> which is i mean these are we don't know these are these, we, are these it, adult problems that we these, these are adult on. problems that uh you have to consider them very closely because otherwise <laughs> it's going to be like make or break uh, it's just going to be a, a physical manifestation of the resentment of of one one spouse <laughs> well that's where other. you wanted it so <laughs> yeah i don't i'm not complaining about it why is that there well i don't know I don't you'll know. have to well, ask her to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you you make me want to get married. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's the seething hate of couples that Gavin and I feel towards each other. Oh, yeah, the that. passive aggressiveness. If you can't detect it, well, you're not listening you close should, enough. You should read the emails we send to each other through actually a mediator. Yeah, we, we don't oh, normally yeah, this, talk directly. Not doing that. My God. <laughs> Either way, take it out, Gavin. Yeah. Say goodbye to the next. No, nice you people. take it. I, uh, not the, now. Not here. To the mediator. Not now. Well, friends, thank you uh, for listening. Thank you for calling. You can show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on iTunes or do what Miranda did and give us a voicemail at 803-563-7169. And you can stay up to date with the latest news on sceTV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. Also, consider becoming an ETV member. Membership starts at just $40. And if you pledge at the $75 level, you get access to PBS Passport and all that great programming your donation helps support. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Hello and welcome to the South Carolina... Oh, oh, oh. Mm, buddy. <laughs> oh, that's oh, a lot of touch and go here.